He is risen. I'm getting tired of saying that, do y'all? Brother David was saying this is the central tenet of our faith. 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 14. Oh, by the way, I usually say, be opening your Bibles. Uh, this time, be having your Bibles handy. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. And your faith is vain. The word for vain means it's foolish. It's kino. Foolish, empty, with no purpose. It has nothing to offer. It goes on a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile or worthless. Different word. It means it's irreverent or even profane or idolatrous. It's, it's damnable. Everything we do is damnable. It's worthy of judgment by God if Christ isn't risen. We're worshiping a false prophet if Christ is not risen. If Christ did not truly in space and time raise from the dead, then Christianity is a damnable religion that you need to run, not walk. You need to run away from. We could rightly say that the bodily resurrection is not only the cardinal doctrine of the Christian, of the Christian faith, but it's also the crowning proof of Christianity. Acts 17.31, Paul's preaching. He says that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man who He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. How? The proof was furnished by raising Him from the dead. If the resurrection didn't take place, then Christianity is a false religion. On the other hand... If Jesus rose from the dead, then not only are his claims vindicated, but so are his promises. The good ones for those who have their faith in Christ Jesus will be raised to life, and the bad ones for those who don't, they will be raised to everlasting torment. Death is no longer to be seen as a great victor for the Christian if Christ is raised, but as a defeated foe. If Jesus raised from the dead, then he has... 1 Peter 1.3, begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15.20, now if Christ is risen from the dead, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. There's a lot riding on Resurrection Sunday, isn't there? The resurrection has... The found, has been the foundation of Christianity from the beginning. Without the resurrection, there would have been no Christian church. The apostles saw Jesus get arrested, and what did they do? Well, they ran away like a bunch of scared little cowards, didn't they? But then they got, they got the report of the empty tomb, and there was a ray of hope. And then they saw the risen Christ, and the world would never be the same. And for 40 days, it says in Acts 1-3, He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them for 40 days. And they didn't just see Him. Luke 24, 39-48, He says to them, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This isn't just a spiritual resurrection or some ghost of Jesus. This is a bodily resurrection from the dead. It's been well said that when Jesus went to heaven, He took His bones with Him. And when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His feet. 
And while they still could not believe because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them in front of them. And now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He showed them that this didn't just happen. This was what God had ordained to happen before the foundations of the earth. This is the unfolding of the eternal plan of God. This is what all of human history is about. He said to them, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So they went out with the message of what? With the message of the resurrection. I don't think the resurrection gets as much attention today as it should get. We meet on the Lord's Day. Why? Because that's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It needs to be more central to our evangelism. Yeah, He died on the cross for your sins. How do you know? Because He raised from the dead. And from there, the apostles went everywhere proclaiming the resurrection of King Jesus the same way that He had taught them. When He taught others... When Jesus, what Jesus had taught them, when they taught others, they did it the same way. Acts 17, 2-3, that He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is that Old Testament promised Christ. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, saying, This is the eternal plan of God. It had to happen exactly the way it did happen. They told of their experience with Christ, the miracles that He had done, the death that He has died. They told of how He rose from the dead and spent time with them and with others. And people responded to their message in different ways. In Acts 17, 32 through 34, the first sermon I ever heard David Province preach. We were kids then. But it was on this text. When they had heard of the resurrection from the dead, some began to sneer. And some said, We will hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some joined him and believed. People are going to respond differently when we give them the message of the resurrection, aren't they? I'm sure you've noticed not everybody you talk to about the resurrection of Christ is ecstatically believing, are they? Some will sneer, despise you over the message. Some are like, well, that's interesting. I don't really know about all that, but that's, that's interesting. We can talk about that. We'll do it over lunch. They won't commit their life to it, but they'll talk about it. And some will believe. But this morning, I want to talk about how we answer the people in those first two groups. Those who sneer and those who agree to hear us again on this matter. How do we deal with those people? Both groups will throw out objections. And they'll throw out rebuttals and alternative explanations for the resurrection. Some of y'all might just want to ignore them, but we're not allowed to. Did you know that? We are called to be ready, 1 Peter 3.15, to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and with reverence. We've got to know not only what we believe, but why we believe it. Too many people know what they're supposed to believe, but when it comes down to defending it, I just about it's how mommy and daddy raised me. Guys, you should not believe because mommy and daddy raised you. The faith of mommy and daddy needs to become your faith in earnest. Kids, my kids, direct to you. Do not become a Christian. 
Do not follow Christ because I say so. But because it's the truth. Because it's the truth. Some of the following claims that we're going to look at today are really, really old of the alternative claims of skeptics. But it serves us well to have thought through all of them. These answers are not the golden ticket to making a Christian out of every skeptical friend that you have. It's not going to work. That's not what this will do. Although God might use some of these answers to that end, that's possible. But it's not the only benefit of apologetics. At the very least, your faith is strengthened when you think through why that the skeptics' objections don't hold any water. And also the faith of your households. It is far better for your children to hear these objections first from your lips with an answer than from the lips of an unbeliever without one. If they hear it first from an unbeliever, they're going to think, oh, these people have thought about it more than mommy and daddy have. And they might be led astray, but hey, no, you ain't saying nothing mommy and daddy hadn't thought about and helped me understand why that it's not good enough, why that it's not as good as the truth of that Jesus really did raise from the dead. So we're going to look at six skeptic claims and then a claim number seven. Skeptic claim number one, the dishonest disciples theory. What is that? What's well, it? The disciples stole the body and they lied about it. They're not just liars, they're also thieves. Right? They're very dishonest. Anyway, we've got, what, how do we know that the disciples... I got some feedback, some reverb... How do we know that the disciples didn't steal the body and then lie about it? We need to think about that. Well, first of all, you've got the problem of if they would have. What possible motive could they have had for stealing the body of Jesus and pretending that he had raised from the dead? The man that they had followed for the past three years as the Messiah, who was supposed to overthrow Rome, had died, and not just died, but died on a cross as a cursed man. If he didn't raise from the dead, then they would have known that he was a fraud. They would have realized that they had wasted the last three years of their lives. They had seen him be arrested. And picture it, they're all hiding away, scared for their lives. After seeing Jesus arrested, they're hunkered down and one of them says, Hey guys, got an idea. Wouldn't it be cool if we pulled a prank on like everybody everywhere? You know, we could like steal Jesus' body and make everyone think that he rose from the dead and then we could start our own brand new religion based on all of these lies. I mean, sure, the downside is that we'd be ostracized by our families, we'd be persecuted and hated, and likely we'd be killed just like Jesus was, but at least we'd save face. We wouldn't look stupid no more. You, you, You might have had one fool that thought, Man, I'd like to say face. But do you think you're going to have 11? And all of them say, hey, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's steal the body and lie about it. And then all the women are going to be like, well, we know they stole the body and he didn't really. You know, we're going to pretend he appeared to us after you steal the body. And then we're going to watch all of you be tortured and killed, some of you, just because, hey, this is a pretty good, fun lie to tell. Hmm. But even if you grant that it's possible that they would have... and I. Th- Can y'all agree with me that that's a bit of a stretch? But even if you grant that they would have, maybe they would have, you've got another problem is the problem of if they could have. 
Because Jesus was buried outside the city in a cave that was hewn in a limestone hill. There was a great stone, Matthew 27, 60. Turn with me. I'm going to have you turn to Matthew 27. We're going to look at a few texts here in Matthew 27 into uh, 28. But there was a great stone. Guys, when we say a great stone, that doesn't mean a really nice stone. That thing's big. That's a big stone that they they sealed his gravesite with. And it was set on an incline in a channel that was hewn in the rock. That's how they did the the graves. And it was easy to get the big stone and roll it down over the grave. But if you want to roll it back up that incline, that's going to take some boys. That's going to take a few of them. they, They made it easier to cover the tomb by rolling the stone down the hill, but it took several men to roll it back up, which discouraged grave robbers and wild animals from trying to enter the tomb. So it could be done. It was possible for a grave to be robbed with some difficulty and with some cooperation until you consider the paranoia of the the Jews. The, the, The enemies of Christ actually wanted to make it impossible for the claim of the resurrection to happen, but they actually made it impossible to deny it accidentally. Look at Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he, Jesus, was still alive, that that deceiver said, After three days I'm going to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples might come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and they made the grave secure and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. I learned something this week that's of little importance but it's interesting just the same. Pilate saying you have a guard, go and make it secure as you can could be him granting their wish and sending a Roman guard but it also could be him saying hey, you got your own guards. I'm not sending any of my Roman guards uh, you can go take care of this. Your own, this is your own Jewish business. You take care of it yourself. The Greek isn't clear, but when the guards reported back, they didn't go to Pilate. They went to the chief priests, which makes me think maybe it was Jewish temple guards that were watching over. If that throws you off and you're like, hey, that's not ever I've thought of it, still it seems to actually make more sense. But it really, either way, it doesn't matter. You have either highly trained Roman guards there, Or you have highly motivated Jewish temple guards there that are on high alert because they don't want this Jesus thing getting back out. Either way, you've got guards there. The seal that was placed over the door, it was a soft moldable substance, probably of clay, that was imprinted with the the Roman imperial seal and attached to the stone with a rope. And if you broke that seal, it would incur the empire's wrath. And guys, the empire's wrath wasn't a slap on the wrists at that time. It was a you're dead kind of wrath. You don't break that seal. Neither type of guard could stand against the Almighty though and no government's seal could intimidate God. Look at what happens in Matthew 28, 2 through 4. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. 
But that's not what they say happened. We learn in Matthew 28 that the dishonest disciples theory first originated before the canon had even been written. This is where it started in Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Now, but while they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if... This should come to the governor's ears, Pilate's ear. We will win him over and we'll keep you out of trouble. You just say that we fell asleep and that we'll, we'll keep you safe. Make sure that he don't have you executed. Just don't, don't worry about it. And they took the money and they did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. This is Matthew doing what I'm doing today. Some skeptics are saying there's an alternative claim that... Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, but the disciples stole the body, and he's answering it to tell you what really happened. Does that show us that there's a place for apologetics and for answering the skeptics? Absolutely. But let's think through this theory. You say, well, how do you know that Matthew didn't just say that they fell asleep? Uh, when really that, you know, I mean, Matthew didn't just say that they rose from the dead and that this story took place, but really they did, they did steal the body. How do we know? Well, the stone that covers the tomb was extremely heavy, as we've already said, right? And it would have taken several men to move it. So several of the disciples sneak up. And they see the Roman or the Jewish soldiers who are supposed to be on high alert for them specifically, watching out for them, but they've fallen asleep. And unworried about waking the soldiers, they say, yeah, I know there's some soldiers there, but they're sleeping. And they tiptoe up right around all the guards. And they try to move this big, heavy rock over the opening of the tomb. And of course, they have to move it without grunting. I mean, the thing's extremely heavy, but they're all pushing on it, and they're going, they can't grunt, because if they grunt, they might wake up the guards. And they also got to be real careful. I mean, have you ever moved rock on rock? Is that quiet or loud? I mean, these guys had some Xanax going on or something if they're sleeping through this. Right? I mean, Natal will help you get your Z's, right? But they, they, move, they have to move the heavy rock. They can't grunt. they they, they got to make sure that the rock moves quietly. They break the Roman seal on the tomb knowing that if they do so, that that's in an unauthorized way, that it's a certain death sentence, but they do it anyway. And these Orthodox Jews go in and grab a dead body, well, which would have made them unclean, according to the law, and they carry the body out over one of their shoulders or something after moving the rock, the stone, and they have to carry it out, carry Jesus out, all of them, and move past the guards again while carrying this dead body. I didn't really realize that the disciples were a bunch of ninjas, right? Or, or, or the guys from Ocean Eleven. <laughs> or, or Jason Bourne or James Bond or that dude from Mission Impossible. No, they're, they're all that combined for this to happen. For this theory to be true, that, they had to be that sneaky. And what would be their reward? If they pull it off and don't get caught and don't get executed, then they get to pretend that Jesus rose from the dead and spend the rest of their lives in difficulty, rejection, persecution, banishment, and possible martyrdom for their efforts. Guys, I don't think that theory is plausible at all. Do you? 
uh, in southern lingo, that don't make no sense, does it? I also like to point out the, the, another problem is the way they wrote this in all the Gospels, it's an absolutely terrible lie. When dealing with historical events, one piece of evidence that leads, lends credibility to an account uh, being authentic is the inclusion of embarrassing details. And there's several embarrassing details in the resurrection narrative. First, women saw Jesus first. Now, I know we're in a feminist culture today. How many of you knew that they weren't? Okay. All four Gospels mention that several women were the first to find the tomb empty, which makes them the primary witnesses. You find that in Mark 28, Mark, I mean Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. All of them point that out. In first century Palestine, women were low on the social ladder. This is a rabbinical saying, okay, from the from the halakha. Let the words of the law be burned rather than be delivered to women. They would have got canceled today. But, blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to them whose children are female. That's also in the, in the Talmud. Uh, guys, I don't feel... Girls, I love y'all. I'm very thankful for you. But that's how they felt. That's what they said. And not only do we have this rabbinical saying, but you have the historical reality. Women's testimony was not even allowed to serve as a legal witness in a Jewish court of law. If the writers of the gospel were making up a story and they wanted people to believe it, then they would have stated that men were the first to find the opportunity. They're making it up. They make it up any way they want to. And then the rich man's tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, you know, stumbled upon the tomb to make sure it was sealed and there was Jesus. And you know, But no. Some women went. tomb was empty. Jesus wasn't there. And why didn't they... Why didn't they do that? Well, the reason is because they wanted to tell the truth. They actually told us what really happened. One of the women also that was the first to see Jesus was Mary Magdalene. How many people know about her? She had just been demon-possessed. Oh, the crazy lady that just had demons not long ago, she was the one that found him. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Very credible witness there. Why, did they, why would they say that? Because it's what happened. That's why they would say it. Because they're not trying to make a believable story. They're trying to tell you what happened. And that is what happened. On several occasions, the people who knew Jesus also couldn't or didn't recognize Jesus after the resurrection. If they were making up a story, they probably wouldn't have wanted to include that. If they didn't recognize him, well, how do you know it was him then? You wouldn't want to add that unless it was actually true. But once again, they wanted to tell the truth. And another thing that we want to point out before we move on to skeptic claim number two is empty tombs do not produce resurrection appearances. Even if the body is stolen, we still have another problem. Jesus didn't just appear to the eleven. He appears to the women. Are they going to go along with this lie while watching these men be tortured over and over again? Jesus appears to 500 men at the same time, according to 1 Corinthians 15.6. And Paul invites you, many of them are still alive today. Go back and talk to them if you don't believe me. And he, Jesus appeared to his half-brother, James. You say, well, his brother's going to lie for him. His brother didn't believe in him during his entire earthly ministry before the crucifixion. And then, last of all, to Saul of Tarsus. We know him as Paul, the apostle, who went from being an ardent persecutor of the Christian church to its greatest missionary. 
because he had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. The, diso- the dishonest disciples theory does nothing to address these events. We need to wad it up and throw it where it belongs, don't we? But that's not the only thing that people say. There's a skeptic claim number two is the unidentified body snatcher theory. Who could and would steal the body under these circumstances? You have to have both. You have to have somebody that could do it and somebody who would do it. So you think, maybe the Romans did it. Well, they could have, but they would have. If Pilate had agreed to have the guards watch and seal the tomb in order to present such a theft, they could have stole the body and hid it somewhere else. They wanted to put this sect down. It was causing unrest in the empire. So if the Roman soldiers did something like that and they were caught then they would have been executed. And if they did it because Pilate said so, when it started causing a problem and you know, everybody saying, well, Jesus rose from the dead, he said, no, he didn't. Here's the body. They wouldn't have wanted to cause more unrest in the Roman Empire. Does that make sense? And the Jewish leaders, they couldn't and wouldn't. They were the, only, they were the ones who had requested to have a guard to protect against the theft, right? They didn't want it to get out that maybe he had been raised. They were actually trying their best to prevent that. The presence of the soldiers and the seal over the door made it virtually impossible for anyone to steal the body. Even if you think the guards were Jewish guards, then we would say that they could have, but they certainly wouldn't have. If any of the enemies of Jesus had taken the body, then they would have brought it forward as soon as the claims of the resurrection were made. The easiest way to end the whole affair would have been to parade the corpse of Jesus around the streets of Jerusalem, proving to everyone that he was still dead, just as dead as it had been three days before. The fact that they didn't proves that they didn't have the body, right? And the women, well, they couldn't have and wouldn't have. It would take several men, and you run into the same problems of if the disciples might have stolen the body, but it's only heightened because women are not as physically strong as men, and transgenderism wasn't a thing then. So, even if some unidentified body snatcher did somehow snatch the body, we still also have this last problem that we had with skeptical claim number one. Empty tombs do not produce resurrection appearances. The unidentified body snatcher theory still does nothing to address all the people who claim to have saw Jesus alive, to have seen Jesus alive after his resurrection. So that one, it's no better. Skeptic claim number three. This is the confused woman theory. Also pre-woke. Nobody would say that today, right? But the women, the theory is basically they went to the wrong tomb. Well, they watched him being buried, so they should have known where it was, right? And historically, it's men, not women, who are reluctant to ask for directions. (laughs) But even if you grant that they got turned around sometime and they mistakenly went to the wrong tomb, the women didn't just report that their tomb was empty. Remember Matthew 28, 5 through 8? The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified, but he's not there, for he has risen. And the guy's in his sparkling, dazzling clothing. We've got a miraculous, angelic appearance that we're still dealing with, not just an empty tomb. Going to the wrong tomb doesn't explain that, does it? Plus, don't you think the disciples would have investigated? Let's say that they went to the wrong tomb, they come back, they tell the disciples, Hey, Jesus, he's not there. And the disciples, they say, Well, the women said Jesus wasn't there. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And then now let's go hide eggs. No, of course not, right? They would have gone out and found the tomb themselves. It wouldn't have started Easter because the women went to the wrong tomb. And then they jumped to a conclusion that got them all killed. Oh, well, bad news for them. Of course not. 
And the authorities who would have desperately, they would have desperately wanted to produce a body had there, had there been a wrong tomb kind of thing, well, the authorities certainly would have known where the right tomb was and then they would have produced the body immediately. And once again, as with one and two, misidentified tombs do not explain resurrection appearances. You might explain the empty tomb this way, but you're not explaining all the appearances that he did over the course of 40 days, are you? So what do we need to do with that one? We need to wad it up and throw it away too, don't we? Now we move to skeptical claim number four. We've, we've explained the things that might explain the empty tomb, but now we've got some theories to explain the resurrection appearances. And the first one is the hallucination theory. This is skeptic claim number four, hallucination theory. And hallucinations happen. The Bible even talks about hallucinations. Proverbs 23, 31. Do not look on the wine while it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. As at last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper, your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. So maybe they got their drunk on and they saw some, strong, some strange, strange things, right? Guys, we don't, any of us don't need to be getting drunk, and if you're going to, definitely don't do it on Bud Light today, right? Stay away from, stay away from that. We don't support that garbage. But they, maybe they hallucinated for some reason. But let's really think about that. Do mass or multiple hallucinations happen? I mean, Jesus didn't appear to one person. One person could hallucinate. But he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible truths, having been seen by them, not one, but many, for 40 days. Did all of them have the same hallucination? That's some, that's some strong wine right there. And I don't know how it's syncing everybody up as one organism and making them all have the same hallucination. I mean, or, or, or may, I mean, if we're going to go that route, they all had the same hallucination. Some people so don't want to believe in the resurrection. Maybe they think that they, somebody stole the DeLorean from Michael J. Fox and went back in time with some sort of 3D machine and put a hologram up. And everybody, I mean, there's no way everybody's having the same hallucination. Doesn't make any sense. They could co collaborate what they saw. And these went on for 40 days. It was like a hallucination pandemic. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they just stopped. No vaccine or anything. 40 days. 40 days of hallucinations, and now it's cured. Nobody's having them anymore. I don't think so. Another important thing is that the reverse of this problem of our first three points. In our first three points, we gave, we gave some explanations, poor as they were, for the empty tomb, but they did nothing to address the resurrection appearances. The hallucination theory, as poor as it is, explains the resurrection appearances very poorly, but hallucinations don't produce empty tombs. The tomb's still empty. And the... Authorities can still say, hey, you guys crazy. You all getting on some of that really bad Bud Light stuff. You're having your mass hallucinations together. But here's the body. So whatever you think you saw, you didn't. They couldn't do that. Why? Because the tomb was empty. Hallucination theory doesn't work. Skeptic claim number five is the impersonation theory. I like this one too. This theory suggests that the appearances were not really Christ at all, but someone impersonating him. This, the opponents say, is evident. It's obvious, they say, because in some cases, they didn't recognize Jesus. So somebody's pretending to be Jesus, and he fooled them. 
Well, first of all, I would say that the, the disciples were reluctant to believe in the resurrection. They were doubtful and they would, they would have been hard to convince unless it was really him, as is the case with doubting Thomas. These men had close personal interactions with our Lord for three years. It's, highly, it's impossible that an impersonator could have deceived them. And it would have been absolutely impossible to impersonate Jesus' wounds. How did Jesus prove that he really was who he said he was to Thomas? Well, he had a big gaping hole in his side and in his wrists and his feet. And he invited Thomas to put his fingers in the holes in his wrists and his feet and to thrust his hand into his side. That's a committed impersonator there who's going to maim himself in order to get one over on everybody to make them think Jesus rose from the dead. Gotcha. What? Why? You still have the problem also of why? At times, they didn't recognize Jesus also. Another point. But at times they did. When they didn't, it was because they were supernaturally kept from recognizing him for a time, for a purpose. Luke 24, 16, their eyes were restricted that they should not recognize him because Jesus was going to prove a point or God wanted to prove a point through it. But at other times, they did recognize him. It's not like always they didn't. And the impersonation theory does not explain the supernatural events that Jesus did post-resurrection. They were meeting in locked chambers in some instances and suddenly he would appear to them passing through the door and then he would vanish from right in front of them. That's some good impersonations right there, isn't it? (laughs) The impersonator would have to be the great Houdini or David Copperfield or David Blaine or Michael Carbonaro, depending on how old you are, right? But no matter which one you pick of those people, they weren't born yet. So I'm thinking that they weren't around. And the impersonation theory doesn't make any sense. Plus, where did this mystery man go after 40 days? He appears for 40 days, and then he's gone. Some prank. And we get back to the problem with the hallucination theory. Impersonations don't produce empty tombs, do they? This person would have had to first steal the body before his impersonations, and we've seen the impossibility of being able to steal the body. So it still crumbles, it still falls away, it still falls apart. Where'd the body go? And now we get to the one solution that takes care of the empty tomb and of the resurrection appearances. And that's known as the swoon theory. Anybody ever heard of the swoon theory? It's that Jesus didn't die. He almost died. And he passed out. He swooned. And then he woke up and he came out and fooled everyone into believing that he had raised from the dead. We just need to think about Jesus' last few days to address this one. This one's a little bit PG-13, but I want to go through it for you anyway. Let's consider the pre-cross suffering. What did Jesus experience in the last little bit that he was before his death? When it all began after the Last Supper, when Jesus was his, went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, and he prayed all night because he knew he was going to die when he went up to Jerusalem. He knew the amount of suffering that he was going to have to endure. He knew that he was going to have to take on the sins of the whole world, and that's a lot of stress. In Luke 24:44 says, "Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly to the point that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground." That's agony. Skeptics say, well, that's unbelievable, that's just stupid. But there's actually a rare medical condition called hematidrosis. 
Amanda, I don't know if I pronounced that right. I'm worse with medical terms than I am Greek. But hematidrosis, it's where great stress can cause your body to actually, the blood to come up and you can sweat it out in your sweat. The blood will be mixed with it. It's very draining, exhausting. Beats you down when that happens. You can just barely make it because of the amount of stress your body. You're having, you're, it's, it's traumatic. And it actually makes your skin very, very fragile and very sensitive, even to just touch. But Jesus went through that and then he was arrested. After being in that weakened state, they smacked him with the palms of their hands and mocked him. and They put a crown of thorns on his head and they went and they took him out and they flogged him. What's that mean? Well, it's not a ruler on your wrists. The soldiers used a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. And when the whip would strike the flesh, these metal balls would cause deep bruises with the first few strikes. And then if you continued striking them, the bruises would break open with further blows. It would not cut you so much as bust you. The whip also had pieces of sharp bone as well that would cut away the skin, causing severely deep cuts in addition to that. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed because of the deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders down the back to the buttocks and down the back of the legs. One physician who studied Roman beatings said as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of flesh. The sufferer's veins were laid bare. The muscles, the sinews, and the bowels were often even open to exposure. You could see their guts. Many people died from this kind of beating. At least... And at least the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into hypovolemic shock. Hypo means low, vol, volume, emic, blood. So hypovolemic shock means that the person is experiencing the effects of losing large amounts of blood. And this does four things. First, the heart races to try to pump blood that's not there. Second, the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. Third, the kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume of blood there is left in you. Your kidneys are starting to shut down. And fourth, the person becomes very thirsty as the body craves fluid to replace the lost blood volume. Remember, Pilate had Jesus scourged, hoping this would satisfy the crowd. He wasn't planning on scourging him and then crucifying him. He didn't want to crucify him because his wife told him don't. So he thought, well, I'll have him scourged. He might survive it, and then they'll be satisfied and they'll let him go. But that's not how it worked out, was it? Mine and your sins demanded that he suffer. There's evidence in the Gospels that Jesus experienced this hypovolemic shock and his collapsing while he was carrying the cross and his crying out, I thirst, while on the cross. Because of the terrible effects of this beating, there's no question that Jesus was already in serious to critical condition before the nails were driven. Before there's a cross. But now we get to the cross. The agony of the cross. Jesus was laid down and His hands would have been nailed in the outstretched position on the horizontal beam. The crossbar is called the pitabulum. And at this stage, it was separate from the vertical beam. Vertical beams in the ground and 
He's laying down, nailed on the ground into the pit of bullum. The Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long. They were tapered to a sharp point, and they were driven through your wrists about an inch or so below the left palm. So it wasn't in your hands. It wouldn't hold you up. It's called hands. You say, well, the Bible says hands. Well, when it says hands, it's this area. It's not as precise as we might think we want to be. It's right through here. In doing so, the nail would... Um, I'm sorry. The nail would have gone through the place where the median nerve runs. That's the largest nerve that goes out of the hand and it would have been crushed by the nail being hammered in. Now to give you an idea of what that's like, do you know what kind of pain you feel when you hit your funny bone? How many here hit your funny bone? Don't you just hate hitting your funny bone? Hate it. Now imagine taking a pair of pliers and crushing your funny bone with a pair of pliers till it snaps. That's similar to what it's like to have your median nerve severed in your wrist. It's extremely painful when you accidentally hit it. Just imagine that. The pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word. Do you know the word excruciating? You ever use that? Stop it. Don't, don't use excruciating. Find a different word. The word excruciating, X out of, crucia, out of the cross. It was a word invented because there wasn't a word good enough for the pain that you experience when you're on the cross. At this point, Jesus was hoisted onto the crossbar and it was attached to the vertical stake and the nails were driven into Jesus' feet. Again, the nerves in his feet would have been crushed. At this point, the arms would have been stretched out about six inches longer in length than they're supposed to go, so it would have dislocated both shoulders, fulfilling Psalm twenty-two fourteen. My bones are out of joint. So we've seen the pre-cross suffering. We've seen what he suffered on the cross. But then you get to the cause of death. Why do you die when you're on the cross? Once a person's hanging in the vertical position, crucifixion results in an agonizingly slow death by suffocation, asphyxiation. This is because the stress on the muscles of the diaphragm, it, it puts on the chest, it holds you in the inhale position where your weight's holding down. You're in the inhale position and you can't, you can't breathe. So in order to be able to breathe, you would, you would push against the little wooden thing down where your feet were nailed in. You could push yourself up with the strength that you had. It's kind of slanted, but you get enough leverage to push yourself up, get a breath, and then hold yourself as long as you can and you sag back down. And you're just doing that over and over and over again. With his back having been flogged like it was, rubbing against the cross over and over. The nail pushing against the foot, locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person then able to relax, take another breath. But every time he would have to push himself up again and again and again. This process would go on and on until the person was too tired or too weak to push himself up. Therefore, he couldn't exhale. He couldn't breathe. As the person breathing slows down, he goes into respiratory acidosis. 
This is when the carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid causing the acidity of the blood to increase. Soon, this leads to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have known the point where he was about to die, where he could have cried out, Lord, into your hands, I command my spirit. Then he died of cardiac arrest. Before he died, the hypovolemic shock would have caused a rapid heartbeat that would have contributed to his heart failure, resulting in a collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart. This is called a pericardial effusion, as well as fluid gathering around the lungs called a pleural effusion. So when the Roman soldier came around and was fairly sure that Jesus was dead, you say, why did he die quicker than the other guys? They hadn't been flogged. He wasn't weaker of constitution. He'd been beat half to death. It didn't take long. He didn't have the strength to push himself up. So they broke the legs of the other men to get them off the, the cross quicker so they could quit pushing themselves up. But Jesus, they didn't have to do that. He was already in that weakened point. They didn't have to break his legs. The Bible says in Psalm 34 that no bone in his body would be broken. And it wasn't. But just to make sure, they thrust a spear in his side. The spear apparently went right through the right lung into the heart. So when the spear was, spear was pulled out, fluid from the pericardial effusion and the pleural effusion came out. This would have had the appearance of a clear liquid. It would have looked like water, followed by a large quantity of blood. So John, he didn't know why, and out came blood and water. He didn't know what he was seeing, but he told us exactly what he was seeing. Punctured it. He was already dead. All this medical stuff had happened and the water came gushing, gushing out. And in the blood, there's no way he was alive. It's medically impossible for this to have happened and he'll be alive. The Romans killed thousands of people by crucifixion. Guess what? They were good at it. There's no historical evidence that they ever failed to even kill one man that they crucified. No, never somebody survived crucifixion. Not once in history. Why would they have failed with Christ? A Roman centurion verified Jesus' death, and they knew death. It was one of their jobs. And then if, if an execution was botched, then the ruthless Romans would have executed those involved in the execution. But suppose this time, we're just going to get plumb silly. Suppose this time we got to bar all medical knowledge we know and everything we know about executions and everything we know about the Roman government. But now I'm going to grant the absolutely impossible and say he did pass out. He, he wasn't dead. Not quite dead yet. He wasn't dead yet. He passed out. He's in the tomb. And he wakes up in a weak and injured state, do you think Jesus could have endured the crown of thorns, a Roman scourge, a cat of nine tails, the hours on the cross, having a spear thrust in his side, the great loss of blood, then going on, on he, he lays there for three days with no medical attention and with no food or water. How are y'all feeling after three days with no food or water? You think it made him stronger? The IV probably helped. Wait, no. No, uh -uh. Then he wakes up and he moves this stone by himself. He couldn't even carry his cross, but he moves a two-ton 
one stone and pushes it up the thing without waking the guards up. And then he tiptoes out past them on pierced feet. What do you think? Think that's what happened? Me. But then there's another problem. If you think he may have done that. I don't know why we need more problems. But then he would have had to go to the disciples and convince them that he was the death-conquering Savior. He couldn't let on and tell them, Hey, I need help. He couldn't be in a weakened state. He had to go to them and be like, Hey guys, I've conquered it all. And be strong enough to be convincing and not need any medical care from anybody. Not need help. He's going to pass himself off as a death-conquering Savior. And, of course, after doing that, he's able to you know, disappear and pass through walls and stuff. Hmm. And then, where did he go after the 40 days? And how did he float up into the clouds with the disciples watching? It's a good trick. Anti-gravity boots, I think. No. We need to put the swoon theory to sleep, don't we? But there's one more possibility. It's not the skeptic's claim. It's ours. Claim number seven. Jesus is the victorious, resurrected Son of God. What else do we have? I couldn't find any more explanations for the resurrection. I looked. I tried my... What else? What other thing could there... This is all the skeptics... Have, they've had 2,000 years and that's the best they've got. No. It is the best they've got because there's no explanation. None of the skeptical explanations work. Sir Norman Anderson, he was Dean of Faculty of Laws at uh, University of London. He spent his lifetime analyzing the empty tomb from a legal perspective, looking at evidence, uh, journalistic kind of evidence. This is what he says, The empty tomb, then, forms a veritable rock on which all rationalistic theories of the resurrection dash themselves in vain. I like the way he said that. Don't you? We've seen that to be true today, haven't we? And what about the Bible? You can't look in the Bible to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. It's like saying you can't look in an airport to prove airplanes. Yeah, you can. You look at the testimony of the Scriptures and you couldn't make this story up, guys. That's the reason after Jesus rose from the dead and He meets with them, that He said, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Quit with your rationalistic theories. Oh, foolish men. Well, that wasn't very nice, Jesus. He's not trying to be nice. He's trying to get you to come to your senses, repent of your sins, and place your trust in Jesus where it belongs so you can be saved from your sins and the penalty of your sins, the consequences of your sins, and the power of your sins. Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures, that He is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, that He's the seed of Abraham through whom all nations would be blessed and who would, and who would possess the gates of His enemies. He's the greater Moses, the one that would come, who would be the final revelation of all things and tell us all things that we needed to know. He's the son of David, the one that would, would build the temple and would be exalted and given a kingdom that would never end. He's the shoot that sprung up from the stump of Jesse. 
and the one that united the offices of priest and king together so that there would be no one lacking to sit on the throne because there was somebody that had conquered death himself. He's that one. He's everything the Scriptures... I could do more. Why? Because there's 41 direct prophecies in the Old Testament. There's over 350 types and shadows of everything the Old Testament said had to happen in the life of Christ. And they all did exactly when they were supposed to. The only time they could have. With the only man it could have happened with. I'm only going to read one of them. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, 4-12. Who is this about? Surely. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely. Isaiah knew before any of this happened. If he could say surely, I know we can today. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Surely. Our sorrows he carried. Yet. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. They thought they were God was judging him for his sins. That's how he was esteemed by men. They're wagging their heads like Psalm 22 said they would. But he was not pierced for his transgression. He was pierced for ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, that flogging I told you about, by that... We are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on this one. This Lamb of God. This priest who would become a king. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke were due. We were the sinners. He was the righteous one. He's bearing our wrath. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Who was he hung between? Thief on each side. Yet with a rich man at his death. Who got his body after he was dead? Joseph of Arimathea. Isaiah, this was written 700 years before any of this stuff happened. How did you know all this? That whole thus saith the Lord takes on a whole new meaning when you actually put it in context and interpret the Bible by the Bible, doesn't it? Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, completely sinless. Who could this be talking about but Christ? But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. Wait, how is he going to see his offspring if he's cut off from the land of the living? Yet he will... You also see the resurrection predicted in this. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded 
for the transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. How can you doubt this book? The only way, the only way you cannot know is because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Oh, foolish man and slow of heart to believe, stop with your scoffing and come. He's commanded men everywhere to repent and he invites whoever will come, come and drink of the water of life freely. Is it a command or an invitation? Yep. Come and believe. You don't have to check your brains at the door to be a Christian. You have to check your brains at the door to not be one. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful to you for making your words so clear, so obvious, so axiomatic, so self-proving. Lord, that there is no other solution but that you truly are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, that you are declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, that all authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth. God, help us to go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever you have commanded. God, we praise you and we thank you that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.